At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Witness Docs from Stitcher. This is an historic time. This is going to be a multi-year fight. Why is it taking so long to get a screening test? It is not a hoax, it is real. Something that we have never experienced before. Wash hands, wash hands, wash hands. I mean, you're the scientist, you're gonna have to tell me. (laughs) Welcome, welcome to Science Rules Coronavirus Edition. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is our special series in which we bring you the latest analysis and the science of this pandemic so that you can be informed, prepared, and calm. We are all in this together, my friends. And as of this recording on Thursday, May 7th, 2020, we have over 1.25 million reported cases of COVID-19 in the United States alone. And that includes, everybody, 75,000 deaths. We humans are getting way too close for comfort with this coronavirus. It's what you might call an acute crisis. It's right here in our faces, and it obviously demands an immediate response. But remember, just because we have a new crisis doesn't make our old crisis go away. That's right, everybody. I'm talking about Bill's favorite topic, climate change. And our guest today is going to help us zoom out and see the connections between our steadily warming planet and the COVID-19 crisis. And believe you me, there are very strong connections. David Wallace-Wells is deputy editor of New York Magazine. He's the author of a truly troubling book about climate change called The Uninhabitable Earth. These days, David Wallace-Wells has trained his sights on the coronavirus, and the analogies between the two problems are remarkable. He's written two big news articles. The first one is called, We Still Don't Know How the Coronavirus is Killing Us. How troubling. And his latest article is, There is Still No Plan. And that's about the idea that there is still no plan. So David, uh, Mr. Wallace-Wells, you are just full of Good news, aren't you? (laughs) Anyway, thanks so much for taking the time. Welcome to the program. May I call you David? My pleasure. It's great to be here. Please. People who read your book, uh, people who saw the article originally know you as the good old uninhabitable earth guy, uh, Mr. Climate Change. But how did you, what led you to to report on the coronavirus, the COVID-19? Well, it was sort of the same process that led me to climate change in the first place. Um, You know, I'm not a science journalist. I'm not a climate activist. I came to that subject out of fear. I was a journalist who was keeping an eye on the news from science, um, news from the academy, and was seeing a lot more a few years ago about climate change and felt that I was getting much more scared reading that research than I saw 
reflected in most of the mainstream journalism about climate change. And I felt there was a big gap in the storytelling there, which I thought it was kind of the only responsible thing to do to fill. And I've sort of felt the same way watching the coronavirus unfold, which is to say, you know, starting in, in sort of late January, um, this seemed to me to be a really big, really scary deal. It seemed to be, for the most part, being minimized by most of the um, most journalists in America. There were some scientists and experts who were, to some degree, raising the alarm, but only in kind of moderate ways. And the political response, I think, in part as a result, although mostly because of how broken and dysfunctional our government is um, in general these days, under the president that we have, just utterly failed to process or prepare for even a kind of a small scale outbreak in the States. And as a result, we have now an enormous, really historically unprecedented, unprecedented anywhere in the globe outbreak. It's, I think, a truly terrifying indictment of nearly every aspect of possible pandemic response, but most acutely the president's that we are the richest country in the world. Up until quite recently, we would have been thought of as the world's science leaders. Um, our CDC would have been leading the fight, even if the pandemic was focused or quarantined in, in other countries in the world. And yet here we are in the US with the most cases, the most deaths, and actually the least understanding of how the disease is affecting us now, because almost every other country in the world has instituted a mass testing program, which along with the preventative measures that it brings about also just tells us where the disease is. Here in the US, we've done such a bad job testing that we don't know where it is. Yeah. And um, we're so much more behind the eight ball than not just our rich peer countries, but much, much poorer, institutionally weaker countries um, all around the world. And that is just horrifying given how infectious and how deadly this disease truly is. Is there something about COVID-19 that's unique well, I think what epidemiologists would say is that it is a really terrible combination of being actually not that deadly and extremely infectious and with a delayed onset of symptoms, which means that, you know, if you take Ebola, the, the case fatality rate, the percentage of people who get Ebola who die is 80%, which is truly terrifying. But that means that it's actually really hard for that virus to replicate because as soon as someone gets it, they get sick and die. You kill the host, that's not what you want as a virus. Absolutely. If you had agency as a virus. In the case of COVID-19, first of all, there's a period of at least five days, and in some cases, as many as 10, where you may have the disease and be infected, but you're not even showing symptoms. And during that period of time, you can spread it really you know, profligately. To, every, to everybody, yeah. <laughs> and then on top of which, um, most people survive. I mean, the case fatality rate, um, as best we understand it, is about 1%, which means while that's horribly high by modern standards, by the standards of truly terrible diseases, it's, it's quite low. And that means that many more people are circulating, carrying the disease and infecting others than you would have with a much more deadly disease. On top of all that, we're living in a much more globalized world than we were in 1918, although epidemiologists would say that all pandemics are the creation of globalization because, you know, in a natural state, a disease would burn through a particular community and that would be it. The, the tribe, everybody in the tribe would uh, get it, get, become immune or die and that would stay in that tribe. But now it goes all over the world. The 1917, 18, 19 flu is an interesting case study in the sense that it took three years to travel around the world. 
And um, there's been new... Now it takes about 15 minutes. Yeah, I mean, uh, truthfully, the best thinking is that the patient zero in China was sometime in mid-November. And there was just new research um, that was published this week suggesting that somebody was infected with it in France in late December. And this person hadn't even traveled to China, which means that there was already community transmission in France as quickly as six weeks from the first um, back to human transmission. Somebody had met patient zero in China and managed to get through a chain of, of handshakes, get to France. All the way to France. The virus got to France, yeah. So, it's, but the other thing about this virus, it's uh, the saying goes, it attacks from your brain to your toes. It's unbelievable. The scientists who are, I mean, it's, you know, in general, it's a respiratory infection. It primarily attacks the lungs, but absolutely every organ in the body is suffering f- to some degree from it, which is not totally unheard of in the virus world. People who work on this stuff, tell you that viruses are really weird um, and do a lot of weird things to your body. But even by those standards, this is an unusually dexterous disease. It can attack your heart. It can um, attack your kidney and liver. We now know there's something called COVID toes, which is when your toes basically look frostbitten because of the effects of COVID. For a while, we thought lung function was being damaged in one way. Now we suspect it was being damaged in another way. It's causing brain impairment. It's causing you to lose your smell. your sense of smell. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just that it's causing all of these symptoms, which would be concerning because it, it, that presents a, a clinical challenge to people treating it. It's that there's almost no unified group of symptoms which you can look to as a signal that, in fact, you have this disease and to think of as the like central it, it, symptom. In the case of smallpox, and it was recognizable. In the case of bubonic, well, measles, for crying out loud. Measles recognizable. Yeah, we were told at the start here that there were three basic symptoms to really look out for, that there was uh, temperature, there was a dry cough, and there was shortness of breath. In the biggest hospital system in New York State, which is the center of the American outbreak, 70% of the people showing up into that hospital with COVID didn't have a temperature. Half of them didn't have a cough. And so you're dealing with a disease that looks very different in different people, and also for which we actually have not such effective testing, which means it's a little bit of a shapeshifter. And especially at the clinical level, doctors literally don't have anything that they can use to treat it. For a while, we were told ventilators were this very useful last kind of backstop treatment. It turns out that ventilators are at best probably non-effective and maybe actually causing some harm to those people who are on them. Most patients would do better with sort of less invasive oxygen support. We heard a lot about hydrochloroquine. Um, we've heard about remdesivir. These are drugs that in very particular cases, they may have a very limited positive effect, but not to the level that we would ever consider in a normal situation, helpful treatments. And that means that in addition to trying to figure out what the nature of this disease is what and what its vulnerabilities are, doctors have, practically speaking, no tools to use to help patients through it. And that's terrifying too. We'll be back right after this. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. 
From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Wayfair's biggest sale of the year is here. It's Wayday. Right now, you can score up to 80% off at Wayfair. Save on sofas and cookware, dining sets and rugs and beds, wall art, bar cards, floor lamps, sailing fans, home decor, all things outdoor, and way more. All up to 80% off right now. Plus, everything ships free. And flash deals are launching all Wayday long. Don't miss Wayfair's biggest sale of the year. Shop Wayday right now from May 6th at Wayfair.com. Wayfair, every style, every home. You know, this is a call-in show, and you can leave us a message by calling in. And so somebody has done that uh, from Nashville, and then you comment on the other side. Here we go. Hi, Bill Nye. My name's Allie. I'm calling from Nashville, Tennessee. Are there any positive effects on the climate with all of this self-isolating and social distancing with less people driving? Thank you for what you're doing. Love the show. Bye-bye. Well, in the very short term, um, this depressed economic um, activity, the, the way that the pandemic has depressed economic activity and um, forced people into their homes is going to cut our global emissions this year. Um, estimates suggest probably it'll be in the range of 5 to 8%, which is an absolutely unprecedented historic drop. Unfortunately, it's not nearly enough to really bring us into a target range for what we would consider a kind of relatively livable, relatively prosperous future. The UN says in order to safely avoid what they call catastrophic warming, which is two degrees Celsius of warming, would require cuts of 8% or more every single year between here and 2030, and then even more aggressive cuts past 2030, which means we would need to be reducing our emissions by as much or more as this pandemic has every single year for the next decade to have a pretty good shot of avoiding catastrophic warming. For you, David, what connects COVID-19 with climate change? Well, there are a lot of different connections. I think the first one is, in both cases, we've been warned by experts for a very long time that this kind of thing was going to happen, that we needed to prepare for it, that we needed to make radical changes to protect ourselves given what was inevitably coming, and yet we failed to take adequate action. There are some differences there in the sense that the pandemic is sort of a Russian roulette game. In any given year, you're not sure that it's going to happen, but you know over time it will happen. Um, and you know the motivation behind making dramatic preparations may be not quite as clear as it is with climate, which is a bit slower, but which we know is happening and is happening over time in a quite predictable way. But there are other things that remind me one of the other. One thing that's really felt powerful to me is that, you know, to me, the main lesson of both is that no matter how protected you feel living in the modern world, however far from nature you think you may be, in fact, your life is circumscribed by nature and everything about your life is um, subject to the whims of nature, which is to say, um, in some cases, the brutality of nature. And I feel that very keenly personally as someone who's lived my whole life in New York City. And for most of that life really did believe that 
when I walked down concrete streets and looked up at steel skyscrapers, that I was living outside of nature and all of modern life had been a fortress to protect us against those forces. Climate change and pandemics both tell us that that is really very wrong. In fact, the more that we build out into the natural world, the more that we deforest and develop, the more that we destabilize our ecosystem, natural ecosystems and habitats through development, but also through simple temperature changes, the more bacteria and virus life everywhere on the earth will change, will be brought more into contact with humans, will be scrambled, and we're going to have more and more of these um, epidemics going forward. So the, 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 big, the big idea that connects these two things, and correct me, is we think we're separate from nature, but we're not. Absolutely. So uh, your latest article, I guess it was uh, yesterday, was um, we don't have a plan. Well, this right. is a this is a reprieve. I wrote a story about five weeks ago that was called "There Is No Plan," and now I was yeah. sort of amazed that after a month of lockdown, which was functionally designed to give us time to roll out a plan, after a month of that, we have no plan. <laughs> we did nothing with the time that we bought ourselves, and it's especially distressing because in almost every other country in the world, most other countries have have taken some kind of lockdown measures, like the U.S. has. But in almost every country in the world, their caseloads have declined dramatically and their deaths have declined dramatically as a result. In the US, for some complicated reasons, we've basically barely been able to reduce either death rate or caseload at all. So rather than getting us back down to zero, we're still at a very high plateau, about 2,000 people dying every day from this disease, which is if you had said to me or you, or anyone listening three months ago, 2,000 people are going to be dying every day from this disease in the U.S., they would have been horrified, as they should be. I think we run a risk sometimes of normalizing these, these numbers because they're, they've become stable, when in fact we should continue to be outraged by them. Well, I am outraged. I guess I'm outraged, but I'm not surprised. Yeah, I mean... Uh, because, so, so let's say, let's say, hypotheoretically, we had a working government. Let's say, what would the plan be? Well, I think it's basically testing, contact tracing, um, isolation, uh, and you know, treatment to some degree. Um, the reports and then quarantining, quarantining. Yeah, the reports that are um, sort of think tank reports put out suggesting exactly how this should be done suggest that we need, um, depending on who you ask, depending on what perspective they have, we need possibly as many as five million tests being conducted every single day. At the moment, we're doing it about 250,000, which means that we're less than 5% where we need to be to safely open up. And yet we're beginning to open up. And we're only at 5% of the testing capacity that we need. Furthermore, th there was a plan. Your state has to have two weeks of, not, of a flat curve of death. Not just flat, declining. And nobody, that's not true anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's open them anyway. And it's just... And the, the contact tracing is just as dramatic. It's um, the estimates are that we might need at least 100,000, possibly 180,000 um, contact tracers all around the country. These are people who, you know, once someone's infected, they go back and find everyone they got into contact with and make sure that they're seen by doctors and treated as well. And we have at the moment less than 10,000. And even with plans to ramp that up, we're going to get only to about 35 or 40,000. So we're dealing with still just a fraction of what we need a on that level. A factor of five or six, yeah. And the, 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 the state we're in, you mentioned the decline of, you know, we, we were told a few weeks ago that we needed to have a steady two-week decline before we even considered opening up. We're really moving in the other direction. There was a, a leaked report from the CDC this week 
suggesting that as soon as June 1st, which is now about three, four weeks away, we would have um, about 3,000 deaths in the US every day. So we'd have a 50% increase from where we are today. And that's actually, that, that was the headline number, which was much talked about. I actually think the report is considerably scarier than that because this model had been run for a period of about six weeks. And for almost all of that period of time, the daily death totals, the data was falling not at the median projection, but at or north the 97th percentile projection. Another analog to climate change. Absolutely. <laughs> Where they do their best to say, okay, business as usual, but it's actually far worse, far worse. than that. In, in yeah. every measure, by every measure. And if you take that 97th percentile um, projection and, and sketch it out to June 1st, you're talking about 15,000 people dying every day, which is 450,000 in a single month. Those are numbers that we we really have a hard time wrapping our heads around. Um, the analogies we've already run, run through the analogy of nine eleven. We've already uh, we're having a nine eleven every day. We've already run through the analogy of the Vietnam War. More people have now died from this than in the Vietnam War. We're running out of things to compare this to, um, and it looks possible that even just over the next few weeks, the the death toll will grow so large that um, it will overwhelm even. Um, what we think of today as a horrifyingly high normal. We're still basically holding the disease steady, not reducing its size, which means even six weeks- In the US. In the US. In the US. Which means even six weeks of these incredibly aggressive measures have, they've allowed us to stabilize the disease, but we're not actually winning the fight. And since we're about to go into a less rigorous um, regimen, a less rigorous setup, I think it's quite likely that the case numbers grow um, relatively quickly. To me, this amazing, putting aside objectionable, just amazing evacuation of responsibility from the federal government. You know, Donald Trump is this incredible political animal. He sees everything in terms of his own political fate. Surely he must see that he will stand a better chance of reelection if he gets this thing under control. What we've seen a lot throughout the presidency, with the possible exception of immigration issues, is that whenever he's faced with an opportunity to kind of like seize more power, but have to take more responsibility at the same time, he chooses instead to evade responsibility. Um, yeah. And yeah. It, it's almost like at this point, he would rather lose the election and have the virus to blame for that loss than put himself all in on an effort to solve the problem and actually have to stand up. David, uh, this is just cool. You, you are on this. So I just want to do a recap. Um, <laughs> No, I'm serious. Uh, we covered a lot of stuff. And when I say cool, of course, very troubling. What are the biggest surprises about COVID-19? The thing that surprises me most is how little we know. We don't know why children are, are spared, relatively speaking. We don't know which comorbidities are most determinative. We don't know why some countries have fared better than others. We're still Comorbidities, it means other things that kill you that are... Uh, that you don't notice. Yeah, you know, you there's there's pretty good research suggesting that current smokers, for instance, fare better with COVID than people who quit smoking. This is a respiratory disease. That doesn't make sense, but we don't understand it. There's so many things about this disease that we don't understand because we are still at this very preliminary stage in our knowledge. That's true at the clinical level where we're trying to figure out how it acts in the body, but it's also true at the public health level. We don't know what measures work best. We think testing and tracing is our best bet, but it's not entirely clear. 
You got to be on the four corners somewhere. One hundred percent. Test, trace, isolate, quarantine, someplace. It is the case right, that every, does, every country that's that's gone on gone in on mass testing has done better than all the countries that haven't. So yeah, and the U.S. is kind of the worst at it by fraction, by percentage. Right now, uh, uh, what can we learn? Let's see. Let me just ask you these. So individual action is not enough. In, in the coronavirus, nor is that enough in climate change. We need government action. We need institutionalized action, wouldn't you say? The changes are too big to bring about through individual action. It's simply that. It's simply the math. Let's say you were king of the forest. You know, the cowardly lion is king of the forest. Mm-hmm. Is there something or a group of things that you would do to address this? Climate, you mean? No, COVID and climate. Or you pick, or both, or whatever. I'll, I'll do both. I'll do both. Uh, on COVID, I think really large-scale testing, probably down to the at the rate that would mean everybody got tested every couple of weeks. Simultaneous, large, large investment in vaccine and therapeutic development, probably accompanied with some relaxing of the approvals pathway, so that some of these things could get out to the public a little bit quicker than they might otherwise so that we could get you know, a vaccine in a year rather than two years or that kind of thing. But the biggest thing is just getting the testing out there so that people aren't going around transmitting the disease without knowing it. And that's where we have to test not just symptomatic people and not just people on the front lines, not just vulnerable people, but everybody. So we know that even those people who don't know they have the disease, we know they have it and can isolate them so they don't give it to other people. On climate, the biggest low-hanging fruit is the fossil fuel subsidies. According to the IMF, which is no left-wing environmental organization. International Monetary Fund. Globally, they say we are subsidizing the fossil fuel business $5.3 trillion a year. Now, that's that's a little misleading because it's not just direct subsidies. It also reflects the fact that the price of carbon doesn't reflect the environmental costs of burning it. Nevertheless, I think it gives you just a, a sense of the scope of how much we are supporting the fossil fuel business and how much of our political economy all around the West is oriented around these businesses, which are not just, for the most part, not profitable if we remove those subsidies. They're also poisoning our future. And so the logic of continuing to support them, I think, is incredibly, incredibly weak. And it's the public is gaining an understanding of this so that removing those subsidies, I think, would be kind of a political winner. So for me, globally, that's the easiest, biggest, lowest hanging fruit in dealing with climate change. There are a lot more things we need to do, but that would be a fantastic start. This has been fantastic. So what I'm getting from you, David, is we got to vote. People have to vote. It's all politics. So uh, get out there, everybody. Get ready to vote. Vote on every measure on your ballot. Our guest today has been David Wallace-Wells. He is deputy editor at New York Magazine and the author of The Uninhabitable Earth. And he's looking at the stark challenges that are facing us with the COVID-19 and the virus and climate change. David, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. It's great to talk to you guys. Hopefully we'll cross paths again soon. Thank you for listening. Remember, this is a podcast that uses voicemail. We want to hear from you, just like we heard from our friend Allie uh, in Nashville. So you can call us and leave a voicemail. You remember this technology. You hear a beep, you say things, you hang up. 201-472-0785. And leave us a question, or if you have a story about your experience, that's 201-472-0785. Thank you so much for listening. As you may know, I'm Bill Nye, and my friends, this is a pandemic. 
It is all over the world. We are all, all of us humans, in this together. And so now, more than ever, science rules. Now, if you like Science Rules, Coronavirus Edition, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out. It helps other people learn about the show so that we can make the show better all the time. Thank you so much. With Science Rules, Coronavirus Edition is a production of Witness Docs from Stitcher. The show is produced by Stephanie Karayuki, Dan Bloom, and Corey S. Powell. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is once again Luz Fleming, who also mixed this episode. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Special thanks to Casey Halford. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, science rules. So a few more things. Vote, everybody. Be sure to vote. Vote, vote, vote. And while we're talking about saying things three times, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Thank you, David. Let's change the world. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.